Alrighty, good evening ladies and gentlemen, and um, thank you for coming out this evening. We're going to do a quick tour through, you know, 1400 years of theological history of the Western world. In my mind, philosophical history stops with the fall of the Roman Empire and begins again during the Renaissance. <laughs> that 11, 1200 year gap, I, I generally tend to sort of gloss over. However, this is intellectually dishonest. So um, we're going to revisit that. And this is the history of the Western church, uh, grossly simplified, of course, because there's a lot of history there. But basically, that's what we're going to uh, cover tonight. Um, and what I particularly want to focus on are the heresies, because what the heresies let you know is where the arguments were. And I think what you'll see is that many of the arguments are arguments that have never stopped. There's still arguments within the church, and some of them are arguments that continue outside the church. Because I mentioned on the first uh, of these lectures, I said, what's the difference between philosophy and theology? Um, I said, philosophy starts with a question, um, and then goes from there. Theology starts with an answer, the answer is God, and then goes from there. Uh, so what you get when you do theological history is everybody knows what the answer is, but they disagree about what the answer means. And so it's this weird displacement where you get a lot of the same questions, but because it's me metaphysical, meaning there's no way to answer it because, or, or to resolve a dispute because the only thing you're appealing to uh, is this figure uh, of God of some flavor. And so what you argue about is the nature of that figure, because if you can get that worked out, then everything flows from there. So you end up doing a lot of circles uh, in theology. But I think you'll see why some of these questions are, remain with us and will probably always remain with us. So some, some key dates, and this is sort of vaguely the history of the Catholic Church. Or, or the first couple of centuries of Catholic Church. So in 313, legalization of Christian, Christianity under Constantine, the, originally it just, Christianity was illegal. So you could be persecuted for practicing Christianity. And a lot is made about the persecution of the Christians in history. The Romans weren't all that busy persecuting Christians. Uh, they, they, they had a lot of other people they wanted to bother. Um, so uh, that, that can be overblown. And then, so 325 to 800, you get a whole series of attempts to organize the church. They have like the Nicene Council. They have all these really big meetings and all the various um, cardinals and bishops and religious figures would gather and argue about who got to say what to whom and who was in charge and what did it all mean. And so... Uh, it was a, an organizational time, but the problem is, is if you pissed off too many people, then they would form a schism, and then the church couldn't survive that. So it was a lot of argument, a lot of fighting, a lot of internal persecution. The first thing, of course, they did when, when they took power in Rome was start persecuting people they disagreed with. Uh, so, you know, that went on. And then right around 900 to, say, 1300-ish, or 1200, the Catholic Church had become sufficiently well-placed in the political and civic and, uh, of course, religious life of sort of continental Europe that they began to, to really systematically consolidate power. Um, they started forming the strong hierarchy. They started to be more strict about enforcing the rules wherever they could. They tried to, uh, they didn't try to, they successfully intervened in all kinds of civic arrangements until, um, you know, by the height of the 1200s or so, everything 
more or less ran through the Catholic Church in a way that's hard for us to understand, but uh, when you were born, you were baptized. If you weren't baptized, you didn't count, essentially. I mean, you didn't practically exist uh, legally. I mean, not just sort of culturally, but legally. You sort of were a non-entity. Um, you, uh, your marriage licenses, if you wanted to get married, you had to go through the church to get permission to marry. What you ate, where you went, uh, where you went to church. I mean, land swaps, it's important to remember the Catholic Church controlled by this time immense percentages of the land in, in Europe. It varies depending on the country you're in. You know, 15 to 20% of the land to 30, 40, maybe even 50% of the land in some areas. But, you know, huge, huge percentages of the land. They controlled trade. They had rules about taxation. Um, you know, just, it just was in every aspect of life was involved with, related to, or uh, appealed to the church for various kinds of rulings, interventions, uh, concepts, the whole, the whole program. Uh, and then from 1200 to about 1520, you get the beginning of the Inquisition around uh, uh, 1200. Um, and, and that was the, the Franciscans and the Dominicans were the two sects that were really busy enforcing the Inquisition. Um, in Spain, it was the king of Spain as much as the Catholic Church, but uh, outside of there, it was a lot to do with the Franciscan, the Dominicans enforcing the power of the Catholic Church, of course, which engrandized power to their sects. Um, and then, of course, that rolls into the Reformation at which everything blows up. Uh, so we're going to talk about what happens later, but that's roughly the timeline we're going to be talking about until the very end. So, uh, a, a period of formation, the 300s, consolidation and organization of what it means to be Catholic. This is, think, 300 to, say, oh, you know, 900, and then a consolidation of the power of the church within the civic and political structure of the state, or many states, by the way. Uh, so, what were some of the debates going on? So, the earliest one is probably Gnosticism. So, Gnosticism um, had a huge influence on early Christianity, Neoplatonism, all kinds of things. And it was this argument that said that the God of the Bible is actually a demiurge. He's the wrong God. Do not worship that God. That the creation of the world is kind of a mistake. Um, and, and we were misled into this, sort of the, the God of the Old Testament was sort of the bastard child of Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, herself who was sort of a child of the actual unknowable, eternal, temporal, powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, ineffable God of history. There's some chairs right back there on your left. F feel free to grab those. Okay. Um, and that concept of an all-knowing, all-seeing yet untouchable, sort of incomprehensible God, that's the core of Gnosticism, is essentially the God you end up with in Christianity by about, you know, say, 16, 1700, right? There's a big concept of this ineffable nature of God, the spirit of God. Some scholars have said when you see, hear about the Holy Spirit, this is an attempt to incorporate Gnostic ideas uh, into the, in the Christian church. But what's happened is, we each within us have a spark of the ineffable God of, that made the universe. And the only way to know what's true is to look within yourself. And then when you've looked within yourself, you'll discover the truth and you can share that with people. 
So it was sort of a mystery religion because it was just shared concepts from internal meditation that gave you access to the truth. Now, if you're trying to create a hierarchical church, this is no good, right? Because the only way you can access the truth is by looking inside of yourself. And that, that makes it hard to sort of create a bunch of rules. It also makes it very hard to organize. It also means, as you may guess, Gnosticism is incredibly diverse. There was not a Gnosticism. But there are a bunch of related concepts all around this history that says that the Bible is the document of somebody who's trying to trick you, particularly the Old Testament. And they said if you read the Old Testament, it just seemed obvious to them uh, that that's not a good God. Right? They're like, look at the stuff's going on. You know, killing people, drowning everybody. That doesn't seem very friendly. Um, so you know, they just thought it was clearly a document of the God you're not supposed to pay attention to. Um, so you had to get rid of the, the, the Gnostics. And so there was a long-running battle. If you look around the Christian world, about 300, um, you know, the, the Gnostics you would think were probably going to win. Um, but they didn't for the very obvious reason that they can't organize themselves. Right? So the problem with having something that can't be organized is you can't organize it. And it will lose every time to something that can be organized. Uh, but there's a great detail of history that Gnosticism was condemned by the Catholic Church, or the early Christian Church, by, uh, by, by the Islamic Church, by the Zoroastrians, and by the Emperor of China. So it's a, it may hold the record for the most widely condemned uh, concept of its time. Because it, it spread a long ways, but you know, it always had this central problem of how do you organize this into anything that's structural, that can survive. Really, it's pretty difficult. Um, so Gnosticism was an early argument. So Arianism, the primary reason for the Nicene Council that was called early on, the 325-ish, um, was the Arian problem. And Arianism, as it says here, is uh, about the nature of Christ and the Trinity. So if you've ever wondered about the Trinity, everybody says Christianity is monotheistic with God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, which does not add up to one, right? <laughs> so this is always that core problem. And so if, if you're ever confused by this, don't feel at all bad. The church has been arguing about this from day one. And the Arians basically thought that this was preposterous. There can't be three gods if you're a monotheistic religion. They believed in monotheism. And they said, there's one God. And that God created Jesus. Now, this seems like a sort of obtuse, obscure you know, uh, argument. But it was a multi-century running battle. Many people were killed. Bat literal bat pitched battles were fought. Uh, many of the, uh, of the Aryan invaders what were going with the Arianism. Right? Many of the Gothic groups thought Arianism was just obviously right. Because again, you think monotheism, and you go, okay, we're a monotheistic religion. So remember these groups, most groups were originally polytheistic. And so you convert them to monotheism and said, three gods. And they're like, no, you said one. We're going with one. So in a way, they sort of just took the easy way out and said, no, there's only one. And that God, at some point, created Jesus. He's a later addition. Uh, who then comes down to earth, which is then a big debate. What is the nature of Christ when he's on earth? Is he just a really good human? Is he a really good human who was born of God? Is he actually a being who was here at some point 
uh, incorporated like an angel, right? Had the spirit of an angel in a human form, or was he in fact totally divine the entire time? Each one of these and many other lines have been taken. But the Arians were, were there with like he was created by God, divine, but created by God, but not God. So the problem with this is if he's not God, then sacrificing him cannot save you. So that is the big, that, see this is this, then they say, well, who can save you? Only God can save you. And so you need a relationship with God. So this was a huge debate. Uh, and then roughly you know, a century later, you have Pelagianism. Um, and this, this is the idea that, look, man is not born with original sin, and we can choose whether or not we do good or evil. Now, th again, like the, the Trinity debate, this seems like, okay, why is that a big deal? Ooh, very big deal. What is the role of a priest if you can choose to go, go good or ill? And what is the role of Christ's sacrifice if you have no original sin and you can choose to do good without him, which means you can go to heaven without any intervention of God at all? You can do it all on your own. So at this point, you don't need a church and you don't need Christ because what you need to do, get to heaven, you can do all on your own. Hard, difficult, it's nice if God helps you. So they're clear with that. But it was this notion that God created us with free will. Uh, by the way, this is a very limited kind of free will. People also talk about Pelagianism, about this like huge liberation of humankind have free will. Um, it's important to note that generally people have been assumed to have free will. Then the Catholic Church said, no, you don't. And then Pelagius said, you do in a very limited sense. So within the context of the Catholic Church and the early church fathers, it was a bit of free will. Within the context of the history of humanity and culture, that's not very much free will at all. So depending on where you start is how much free will it seems like you're getting out of this deal. But for the church, this is, again, this is a core strike. If you need to get to heaven in the Catholic Church, you need a priest to help you. You need to go to Mass. You, you need to be forgiven for your sins, and a priest can help you with that because Christ helped you with that. Pelagianism just doesn't end round around that. It says, no, 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 you can do it all on your own. In fact, you don't even need God to help you. Which, is, which notice this, really raises the stature of humanity. No original sin, you can do it all on your own, versus, well, maybe you don't have original sin, but you need God to help you, all the way to the Catholic line, which is you can only do it with God because you're born wrong. Um, so that, this, is, this, is a, this is a big one. Uh, so those are two, three of the very foundational arguments of the early church. And again, each one of these has to be dealt with, or else the church can't organize itself and assert power. How do you get an organized church? Well, you have to get everybody to, to agree about something. This is going to be very important. We'll come, up, we'll come to this. People, at least people have to act like they agree about it. So you have to go to mass and pretend like you care. That's fine. But you can't not go to mass. So people always ask, well, did the ancient Greeks really believe in all these sacrifices to Zeus? We don't know. What we do know is they had to pretend like they did. Uh, and they pretended pretty significantly as if they did. So probably they were just like us. Some people did, some people didn't know, some people didn't, but you had to play along. So the Catholic Church was intent on making you play along. 
because otherwise they lose control, they lose power, they have no way to keep their religion going because how do you organize this? Um, so then I'm just sort of skipping forward because uh, you, you get that period of consolidation starting in the 900, like I said, and, and consolidation means refining this. And so the Catholic Church's power grows, and so factions within the church resist aspects of that power and want to put forward new ideas or keep old ideas that the church had been just sort of playing along with alive. And remember, you're covering this huge span of cultures of this, many different languages, many different histories, many different countries. And so again, everybody's sort of playing along like they all agree, when really they had all kinds of ver variegated ideas. And how many could you keep in the big tent? Um, and so a couple of these, one of my favorites is uh, Catharism. I just love this concept. So there's two gods. The Old Testament God is evil, and the New Testament God is good, and they are at war. Christ is an angel, so there was no actual resurrection. He was never an actual person. He was just an angel sent to earth to help the good God of the New Testament fight the old God of the Old Testament. And again, you can see hints of Gnosticism here. The notion that, oh, the Old Testament God is not very good. And, and by the way, Gnosticism, I should have mentioned this, predates the organization of the New Testament. So they're earlier than a clear organization of what the New Testament was. So they're really in debate with the Old Testament. And they thought, that doesn't look very good. Uh, and so Catharism rolls around and says pretty much the same thing. Hey, look, we like the New Testament stuff. That Old Testament stuff seems a bit crazy. By the way, you, you get the same thing today. People always say, oh, you know, the Ten Commandments, that's the foundation of Christian theology from the Old Testament. It's like, okay, what else from the Old Testament should we follow? People get very vague about that. Because there's all kinds of crazy things in the Old Testament, like stoning children to death who disagree with their parents. I think it's a good one. Uh, you know, it's sort of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, basically, basically they stone you to death for everything. Right? It's whatever you step, jaywalking, we stone you to death, leave people. They have all these rules for like if you capture a woman in war, you can make her your sex slave for 14 days, but then you have to shave her head and put her on the street and sell her. Which seems like a good set of rules, right? You know, that seems reasonable. Uh, you know, there's all, these, there's all this stuff in the Old Testament that just doesn't seem very friendly. Right? The Old Testament God was not a happy, happy-go-lucky God. Say what else you will about him. But, um, so the Cathars look at this and said, to us, the New Testament God seems really different than the Old Testament God. And um, they like the New Testament God. And so they said, let's go with that. And then how do you explain this? And you say, oh, the Old Testament God is bad. And the New Testament God is good. Again, hearkening back to these Gnostic ideas. Um, one thing this solves is where does evil come from in the world? If you have an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God that transcends everything, where does evil come from? Well, that God. Then you have to say, well, why did God create evil? Which seems perverse. Um, so it's a big problem. It's solved quite easily if you introduce another God, in this case, the Old Testament God, who's evil, and they're at war. By the way, this is called Manichaeanism, um, and it's just come up in history. Zoroastrianism has a bit of this in it, sometimes a lot of this. Um, it's another heresy that's been condemned. Uh, by the way, these are all heresies that have been condemned by the Catholic Church, and people have been killed and burnt for it. So that's the list of heresies here. There's a lot more, but these are just some of the fun ones. Um, uh, the Henrikians, so this is 1130 to 1180-ish. All these are very loose dates, by the way, because when does one of these movements start? When does it end? Ah, it's hard to tell. Um, 
So the Henrikians you can almost think of as early Protestant Reformation because they reject the authority of the central church, the gospels openly read as the sole foundation of truth, um, and they reject almost all organized forms of worship. So for instance, just to give you a hint here, um, where does truth come from? Again, if it's the New Testament, then it's the gospels. So can you read the gospels yourself? Ooh. Once people start to become literate, even a few people, then this becomes the question. Can I read the Gospels for myself? The Catholic Church says no. The Henrikians said yes, and so they had to burn them. Um, and so it was a long-running and quite vicious war against them. Uh, but eventually the Catholic Church won because it says, look, again, if you get to read the books yourself and decide what truth is, ah, now do you need the Catholic Church? In theory, no. Um, and they were very nervous about that concept, and they tended to, to push back very strongly with it. So by the time you get to the Protestant Reformation, notice that several of the ideas that are core to the Reformation in the 1520s, 1530s, have been around for centuries. I mean, that's one of the things that kind of blew everybody in the Catholic Church away um, when, when Martin Luther takes fire, is they're like, look, all these ideas have been around. Why all of the sudden is everything changing? <clears throat> Because the Henrikians had, had a big part of this three or four hundred years earlier. Um, and yet, they were able to repress the Henrikians. They weren't able to repress the Lutheran, Martin Luther. Um, and then the, probably the most dangerous idea is the Fraticelli. Uh, it's strict adherence to a vow of poverty. All wealth and property were seen as falling f from the true teachings of Christ. So, yeah, so the Catholic Church was at this point pretty rich. As in, wow, was the church rich. Uh, and, and some of the church peoples, uh, they said, well, let's see, if we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's all these things about poverty, give away all your goods, don't worry about the future, do not trust, you cannot worship God and mammon. Uh, and the church seemed really into mammon at this point. So they extreme vows of poverty, and that only people who had taken extreme vows of poverty should be able to be priests, and should be able to cater to the needs of, of the flock. So it wasn't they were against everybody having property, although they did think that would eventually be the best. What they were opposed to was particularly religious figures having it. They're like, no, you have to give up everything. That's the mark of your religiosity. And so that, ooh, now notice this is a big threat because it, it, it means that you can't collect money anymore, for instance, which keeps the whole thing rolling. Um, and it really was a direct sort of um, challenge to the central authority of the church. So, that, you know, again, another one that was around. So when we get to Martin Luther, one of his key things was like, look, you can't collect all these indulgences, which are basically taxes, and take all the money away. Now, that, now it seems reasonable to us that selling people to get out of jail free cards is sort of crazy. But to the church, it just looked like, look, either we can or cannot collect money, and you're saying we can't and we can't allow that to happen. The church has to intervene at that point. Um, so that's just a quick review of a whole set of, these are major heresies, by the way. There, you know, there's a list of 50 or seven other heretical uh, movie, move, movements of, of pretty good size uh, through this period. Um, but I want to end on the, perhaps one of the more recent ones, which is American liberalism. And this is Pope Leo XIII in 1895 and 1899. He condemned 
um, pretty much everything about American liberalism. Uh, separation of church and state, freedom of speech, divorce laws, reliance on reason, the rule of the government over the people rather than God, etc., etc. And I, I want to stop there and now kind of work backwards because where we are is not where these people were. Right up until the Protestant Reformation, everybody agreed on what you were arguing about. And that's what we've, we've lost. See, they knew that if you got God right, everything else followed. And so they argued really aggressively, sometimes deadly aggressively, about the nature of God and how he should be understood, how it should be interpreted, how do you represent it or not represent it. These theological debates were the core question of everything. So anytime they had a council or a king had a question or there was a problem or a bridge needed fixing, who did you talk to? You talked to a priest about everything because that's where all the answers were. Every appeal went to a theological authority. Even, even <clears throat> civic laws, this is one of the big debates, always this fissure between where does the rule of law of the state or, or, or the aristocracy run into the rule of the church. And for a couple hundred years, the church was pretty dominant. Not absolutely dominant, but kings would follow their lead. They always had to be consulted. You, you had ambassadors from Rome in every major capital of the world and every minor capital of the, of the, of the Christian world. And anything you did, you always had to scratch your head and go, huh, what does God think about this? How does this relate to the church? How does it every, I mean, everything had to run through that metric. And so the thinking for a thousand years of people who were thinking and making decisions revolved around this question. What, you know, so what about God? That's the question I started with. So what, what would God say? What would God think? How is God going to respond? And how are the representatives of God going to respond to these questions? And for us, that's just gone. It, we just no longer have that. And when you look at the, the, the encyclical of the Pope, and again, 1895 and 1899, um, the Pope was saying what has been obvious is like, look, freedom of speech is not a good idea. It says in the Bible you don't have freedom of speech. Freedom of association, not a good idea. Separation of church and state, that's just stupid. That's wrong. All of these core concepts that we have are wrong. By the way, that's because our Constitution was written by people who were educated by the Enlightenment, uh, and it, which was specifically a movement against these concepts. It was an attempt to liberate man from this sort of thinking. And so it's very difficult for us to get our minds back into an environment where whether the, the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, was in fact a separate God or a unitary God or part of Christ or part of God or part of some third thing was worth burning people for and or being burnt for. But if you're in that time, it was the answer to all questions. And so when you read this material, what happens is you realize these people are not dumb. These people are brilliant, highly educated, very insightful, but they always have the same reference point. They, they can't seem to ever, and it's very frustrating, because you, you, there'd be these brilliant arguments, you're reading along, and then you realize, oh, they're, at some point they're just going to stop and say, 
and then God said this, therefore answer solved. But then somebody else says God said something else, and you go, okay, how do you solve that? Eventually, with, with either coercion, discussion, debate, or force. The heresies are the ones that have to be put down by force. But it doesn't, it, it, in, in the end, it ends up being incredibly frustrating because you never can resolve anything because nobody ever agrees about everything. And so just, it's this endless series of, 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 of debates. For access, if anybody's interested in getting a flavor of this, I strongly recommend Umberto's Echo, The Name of the Rose. It's a fabulous novel in which he actually transcribes debates from the 11th, 12th, 13th century to characters in the novel. And you think, wow, that's just what a modern concept that, well, insightfully argued. And people said, this can't actually be real. And he said, no, these are, I mean, he was transcribing actual written works and just working them into his novel. So it's like a murder mystery, which is good, um, in which you never find out who was doing the murdering, by the way. Uh, so it's just strange. Um, it is another uh, sort of theological sort of reference there. And, but it gives him an excuse to just have like 17 different major theological debates happen in one place. And so it's a great way of accessing the thinking. That was his actual experiment, to access the thinking of a, a heavily theologically engaged uh, world. What is the intellectual environment like? And again, it's not that they can't think, it's that their thinking is heavily, heavily constrained by this one core assumption. And, and that just it ends up being both powerful but also incredibly limiting um, because you, can never, you can't resolve it. It just moves on. And so that's why when you get to 1899, 1895 uh, with Pope Leo XIII, now, it just seems silly. Why? You can't condemn freedom of speech. You can't, def de you can't like, demean human reason. Ah, he can, because that's the entire history of the church. If human reason is an accurate guide to the nature of God, well, you might be a Pelagian or a Henrician, because you could read the Gospels for yourself and determine what they mean with your reason. Those are heresies. That's no good. Um, the notion that freedom of people of gathering, right? Well, now you get to this whole Gnostic thing. Right? If anybody can gather anytime they want and discuss whatever they want, how do you know they're not discussing bad things? How do you know they aren't Gnostics, the worst of all possible things, or Arians? That would be terrible. And so, again, but we just look at it and go, well, of course, that's just obvious. But, it, yeah, we're, we're way, the, the, by the time you get the Reformation and then, of course, the Enlightenment, what happens is we've totally shattered that worldview. And so people like to say, oh, you know, America was a country founded on religion. No, it wasn't. It was a country founded on, on not agreeing about religion. It was a country founded on the avoidance of arguing about religion. And I think you should point this out. So, when America was founded, the freedom of religion clause was put in place not because the, the people believed in freedom of religion, it's just because all the states had different state religions. <clears throat> and so what they meant was, well, no one will ever sign up to join all the states 
if we don't let each state determine what the main religion will be in that state. Because you have Catholic states, you have Calvinist states, you have Lutheran states, you had states that were sort of evenly split within them, Presbyterians I think were out there. So you had all these different groups that had sort of centralized power in various of the colonies at that point, of course, before they become states. And so freedom of religion meant freedom for each state to determine what people should do. And then slowly over time that got worked out to like, oh well, just let them, let them do whatever they want. Because of course what they found out very quickly is if you tried to enforce theocratic rule in one place, people just upped and moved, right? This is the key. This is the key to being the Catholic Church and controlling huge swaths of land. Most people couldn't up and move because it was Catholicism for 600 miles in every direction. But if Catholicism is ruling in Delaware, but Maryland is Lutheran, uh, well, it's not that hard. It's not that hard to get there, right? It's a couple miles that way. And so it sort of it worked towards this notion we have now that, well, everybody's free to choose. But notice if everybody's free to choose, you don't have religion as, as a state-organized hierarchical system anymore. I mean, it's around, but not like it was around in the Middle Ages. It's a completely and utterly different way of looking at the world. And you know this because if you look at... Uh, the, like where our government works, our, our governor's office, or the president's office, or whatever, you have economic advisors, you have scientific advisors, you have military advisors. In the ancient world, you had like 17 religious advisors. I mean, they had a guy who knew something about fighting, maybe. They didn't have economists, which may or may not be a good thing. Um, you know, they, but they, they had no science, of course, at all. So you didn't need those scientific pesky people around. So you, any question, again, was appealed to the church. And then once the Reformation takes place, of course, then you get a huge just sort of chaos ensues for a while that really has never settled down. Um, and so all of these heresies roll along until they blow up again in the big event that sets off the modern world in the West. By the way, it's all in the West, um, which is the Reformation. And the Reformation is simply the first heresy that won. Right? It's the heresy that broke the power of the church to control heresies. And again, it sounds very much like Henrichianism. It says, okay, you do not need a pope. If you're the head of the Catholic church, someone saying you don't need a pope is not very appealing. Right? You're like, no, no, you definitely need a pope. But for a lot of people, they said, no, you know, we don't need a pope anymore to access God. We can access God directly. Notice they weren't saying you could get rid of God. That hasn't come around yet. But they were saying, you can access God directly, which again, is right back to this Gnostic idea, or at least a part of it. Do you even need priests? See, some, some um, Protestant sects say, no, you should not have priests at all. And then pretty soon they said, well, you should have priests, and pretty soon they said, you should have priests, and then some of them said, you should have priests in really big churches who collect a lot of money, but were totally different from the Catholic Church. Um, right, so that's sort of you know the evolution of the reintroduction because you can't get organized again, right? How do you organize it? Uh, and so that was one of the core concepts, and it's a concept that comes from again you can see elements of it, Pelagianism. Do people have free will? The Pelagian debate about free will is still going today. It, it hasn't stopped. It's probably not going to stop. Um, fascinating enough, scientists have, for some reason, a group of scientists have decided we don't have free will anymore on the most preposterous evidence anybody's ever assembled. 
Uh, but that's okay, because in the history of the debate about free will, there's been many preposterous arguments. And so I think it's nice for the scientists to weigh in um, with their preposterous arguments. Uh, they're, they're talking about, they're trying to do these psychological studies and demonstrate like nerve movements. It's all nonsense, uh, but it's fascinating nonsense. Um, but you know, th th this debate, because it's a metaphysical concept, and so it's hard to prove or disprove metaphysical concepts, always is. It's one of those root core problems. Um, but now they theoretically have gotten rid of God. My favorite one is people heard that the universe might be a hologram. People heard this one? If you've ever read any medieval theology, it's totally recognizable. For whatever weird reason, a bunch of people in Silicon Valley have decided that medieval theology should come back. Because it's exactly what it is. I mean, it is precisely the arguments that were taking place five, six, seven hundred years ago. We're living in an illusion behind which there's some ineffable, super-powerful force that actually runs and shapes everything. And I think, again, the Gnostics, the Pelagians, the Cathars, and Enrichians would be like totally cool with that. But yeah, return to cosmology. All of a sudden, there's this single unifying force that makes the whole world. This is, this, by the way, this has nothing to do with science. It seems to have everything to do with a deep-seated human desire for there to be a simple organizing force that controls the world, which meets the equally deep-seated human desire not to agree with the other humans. And so the nature of that organizing force, we're not going to agree on, right? And so it just seems to be this inevitable, ongoing, relentless argument about these sort of difficult-to-resolve questions. But important, one thing that the Reformation did, by the way, is it threw off the control elements of the Catholic Church which were also the social structure of your entire society. So who fed the poor? The Catholic Church. Who had the hospitals? Catholic Church. Who had the money? Catholic Church. If you wanted a loan, where'd you go? Often the Catholic Church. Who controlled the farmland? A lot of it, the Catholic Church. Who controlled trade? The Catholic Church. And so when you reform that, or you throw off the rule, it's not like just like, oh, you're not just like, oh, people don't go to that church anymore, they go to that church. You have to work out all the rules of your society anew. See, and that's the difference for us. And I'm always trying to think of an analogy for this, and I, it's, it's so hard, the only one I can ever come up with is, is as if tomorrow we had a reform that eliminated money. And, we're, and we just started to live without it, because it's, it's sort of everywhere. What is something worth? Well, it's money. <clears throat> Do you want to do something? Well, what does it cost? Yeah, it's money. If you want an education, well, that's money. If you want, it, right, our whole relationship to everything is mediated by money. In a way, it was not in the Middle Ages, by the way. Probably most of the population in, most, in, in their lives would perhaps never deal with a cash economy. People in cities and, and, and merchants would, but most people were not in cities or merchants. So they, they were in trade-based or other kinds of, of economies, but not a cash economy. But if we eliminated cash, or God forbid, credit cards, um, you know, where would we be? Everything would be different. It's even hard for us to conceptualize, right? What would that look like? How would we exist? But that's the immense change that took place when you slowly, it took several hundred years, slowly, 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 throw off the medieval mind that was focused on these heresies. Um, and so that's what I'm kind of trying to leave you with. 
So these, these <clears throat> lists of heresies might seem bizarre, or strange, or weird. And when you read them, oh my God, they're just mind-numbing. Like, wow, this is what they were killing people about. Yes, because if you got it right, all good things followed. If you could just get the concept of God correct, paradise. Everything is solved. And the movement out of the medieval theological mind is not a defeat of religion, because religion is, is fine. It's, it's not a defeat of any particular church or schism or concept, because most of them, or at least most of the concepts, are still around doing quite well. Certainly not a defeat of our desire for some sort of religious structure or metaphysical concept to shape our lives, because that seems to be a truly deeply held human need. But it's the defeat of the notion that if I can just get that one concept right, then everything in my life, my <coughs> community, my family, my world, will automatically fall into line and will be great. It's sort of the way we think about the economy. Oh, if the economy is good, everything else will be fine. Although that's kind of falling on rocky ground these days. But that notion that if we can just get the economy right, then all the good stuff will follow. That's the break with the medieval mind, with that theological outlook. Getting, getting the God right, we don't think, solves all our problems. In fact, we associate it kind of with a lot of debate and, and trouble more than solution anymore. And so that's, we've, we've crossed this chasm. The Reformation opens the chasm. The debates were there. And then the Enlightenment movement, both of which we're going to come to, uh, sort of totally destroys it. We, we can't get back. You can't get back there from here. So. That is a quick review of uh, 1,200 years of Catholic heresies and concepts and how we moved out of it. And so I want to move from here. Next time I'm going to talk about the uh, Islamic Golden Age because while all this is going on, this Islam is having its Golden Age without which there would be no Renaissance. So Islamic Golden Age, then we'll go Renaissance, and then we'll go Enlightenment because those are the three steps. You need basically an Islamic Golden Age, then you get a renaissance, and then you need an enlightenment to get where we are today, more or less the modern world. So thank you very much.